For seven years, Republicans have vowed to repeal the Affordable Care Act, known as Obamacare. It has been a consistent message in President Trump's platform. Finally, the first major vote to overturn Obamacare and replace it with the American Health Care Act, or ACHA, was due to happen last Friday, but was canceled at the 11th hour by House Republicans. The BMJ published a debate on that day asking, should U.S. doctors mourn for Obamacare? And now we're asking, what next? I'm Peter Doshi, associate editor for the BMJ, and I'm joined by two of the authors of that head-to-head debate. Dr. Adam Gaffney is a pulmonologist and instructor at Harvard Medical School. He co-authored his article arguing that repealing Obamacare is a bad thing with Dr. Zachary Berger of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Also with me is Dr. Saurabh Jha, Associate Professor of Radiology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Now, both of you, Dr. Gaffney and Dr. Jha, argued your positions before knowing the outcome of the Republican effort. Now we know the outcome and the the bill was defeated. So what next? What now? Are Republican efforts in this area really over or will we see an attempt to repeal Obamacare resurface sometime soon? Dr. Jha? So the American Health Care Act was really one big, gigantic straw man, and it didn't really surprise me that it failed. Now, what the Republicans need to do, what really the country needs to do, is sit down and have a very mature discussion about health care and about the trade-offs, about what we want, how far we're willing to pay, and what we're willing to give up. Unless that discussion happens, there can be no reform or making the Affordable Care Act better or worse, for that matter. Now, there is one thing that the Affordable Care Act didn't do, and I think everyone agrees about that on both sides of the aisle. It did not address the costs. So there are lots of issues that can that have a bipartisan problem, that have a bipartisan solution. And I think the ideology of repealing Obamacare is precisely what we shouldn't be discussing. We should be talking about what the system is presently and where we can go from here, and where we can go from here in a way that harms the middle class the least financially. Dr. Gaffney, uh, you argue for single-payer financing, and Dr. Jha here is now talking about costs. Uh, In his article, Dr. Jha says that single-payer is improbable, for it's too costly. Dr. Gaffney, can you uh, speak to the evidence on this? What is the issue with costs? Yeah, absolutely. And I would agree with Dr. Jha, just as a quick note first, that this, I think we can all agree there's many things the Affordable Care Act did not accomplish. I mean, in addition to costs, I would just throw in real quickly there, it also wasn't universal health care. You know, we still have, um, we're still going to have between 25 and 30 million people uninsured in this country, according to the Congressional Budget Office, um, over the next decade, even though um, Paul Ryan's um, American Health Care Act um, you know, went out in flames. So that being said, I think we can agree we can agree on both sides that there's room for improvement in the status quo. Uh, absolutely. Now, from the perspective of costs, um, there's no question that single payer has some new costs. If you're going to cover those 25 to 30 million people, and if you're going to do what what um, you know what I believe we should do, which is sort of move to how things are in the UK and Canada, where there really is no user fees or cost sharing at the time of healthcare use, that does cost some money because currently people are going without healthcare who need it because of those out-of-pocket costs. But we have to look at the other side of the equation, which is in savings. Um, one big area of savings for which there's evidence is on the administrative side. The United States has um, really the most, um, you know, uh, administratively wasteful um, 
system. There was a, a study in health affairs uh, within the last year or two that looked at the administrative costs in hospitals um, among eight nations. And not surprisingly, uh, in the United States, the highest proportion of hospital spending went for administration and billing activities. And um, so we're really talking about hundreds of billions of dollars a year uh, in potential savings through single-payer financing. Um, additionally, we could talk about some major savings that would accrue from negotiating for drug prices at the national level, and I think that's something that Dr. Ja uh, in his article, you know, agrees should be done also, in the case of Medicare at least. Um, but if you were to do that on the national level, you get even larger savings, maybe knock down drug prices by 50%. So between those administrative savings and the drug savings, um, you can really afford the expansion of healthcare um, that we that um, I envision um, uh, is necessary and is wanted by the American people, uh, and which can be made possible through single payer. Dr. Jha? No, I, I think that um, I agree with the argument that single payer does actually create some degree of stability in that at least people won't be arguing all the time what the next best system is. Now, I do think that there are a couple of problems here, which I, you know, I think it would, be, um, it, it would be too simplistic to compare it to, to Britain. The first is, when you talk about single-payer, you're talking about uniformity of medical coverage. And what is that level of uniformity that you choose? Is it going to be the MD Anderson type of care for everybody? Or is it going to be the Medicaid type of care for everybody? Now, Britain didn't have that problem when, after the Second World War, when the NHS was born, it really was very much of a, um, it wasn't a terribly massive system. And it grew um, uniformly uh, since. But right now, America has very uneven care. And some people have the highest level of care. Um, and if you were to then give that level of care to everybody, I think you're going to probably not get the savings that you might imagine you would get. And Vermont found that out. Vermont, the most liberal state where people, from what I understand, have blue halos around their head. Um, that state couldn't pass a single pair. Why? Because the governor did not want to give, uh, did not want to, you know, raise taxes um, you know, out, of the, out of the ordinary, but also nobody wanted to compromise their level of actuarial, you know, uh, value. So that, that platinum plan that... Uh, uh, was available to the highest level. When you gave that to everybody, it kind of broke the bank. Uniformity, but when, you know, when the rubber meets the road, if that's the right phrase, or you know, when you have to bite the bullet, nobody really wants to compromise their care. So it's all kind of you know, lovely to say it in theory, but in practice it doesn't really work. And that's really, I think, the problem with a single player. And I think maybe that's something that will come 10 to 15 years from now. So I have no opposition to it. I think even you could make a libertarian case for, being, for a single player because it actually removes a lot of the information costs that businesses have to go through. The question is, what are you going to do in the next five years? In the next five years, there's one group of people that are hurting in the current system, and that is the kind of middle class that's straddling the four, three to four uh, federal poverty level, and the healthy ones. I think they need a little bit more help, and particularly the ones on high deductible, they need a little bit more help. And here, the market can help. The market, particularly the direct pay um, method, can help because what they do is they actually circumvent the regulators and therefore circumvent the transaction costs incurred in complying with the regulators. Because, you know, nothing is free. If you want to comply with the regulation, that costs too. And as a result of that, they actually can deliver cheaper primary care to the patients. 
at, at this point in time, I don't see a single player. And at this point in time, we need to rack our brains about what best combination of government and market can help those most vulnerable in the uh, society. I have a question for uh, both of you. American healthcare now seems uh, to be completely and has been arguably for many years completely uh, uh, gridlocked in part by these ideological differences of views about the, ro the role of government versus the role of markets. Are there straightforward opportunities for pretty significant positive changes uh, that don't get sufficient media attention? Dr. Gaffney. Um Surely, but I, I will say just as just to kind of respond to the the premise of the question, I mean I think the American people are not in, in many ways not as ideological as, as you may think. I mean, for instance, Medicare is essentially a single payer program. It's not single payer in that it's only for people above sixty five and sixty five and over, but it's more or less a federal government. It's a federal government program. It provides, um, you know, for the, for, for for the most part, a single tier level of coverage, and that's an extraordinarily popular program. Huge majorities. The Republicans don't even want to touch it. I mean, it was part of Paul Ryan's original plan from last year, but they just dropped it because uh, they knew that it was going to sink their the whole health care policy. Um, I mean, it sunk anyway, but, you know, they didn't even try. Um, and I, I would say also that 58% of the country, according to a Gallup poll last year, support single payer as well. So, um, you know, are, are there things we can do apart from single payer to make people's lives better in the short run, as as Dr. Ja um, uh, suggests? Uh, surely, I mean, there's many reforms that I would be in favor of. Um, certainly, I think now um, with the repeal of the Affordable Care Act behind us, I think um, expanding Medicaid in the 19 states where it hasn't been expanded uh, is an important measure, um, and that's something that can be done at the state level and not even require action at, at the level of the federal government. Um, but again, just just to go back to the premise of the question. Question. I think that um, although you know Americans are sort of said to be skeptical of uh, federal government, and you know we never really had a, a left-wing party in this country, and so on and so forth. Um, again, from the perspective of healthcare, at least Medicare is overwhelmingly popular, and a majority of the country has said they would support a uh, federally funded healthcare system. So I think the political opportunities here are more open and more. Um, uh, really, there's more of a window of opportunity than, than, than many um, would suggest. Dr. Jar, you end your article actually on a similar note, uh, talking about universal basic health care and universal protection uh, from bank bankruptcy should be uh, our goals. And what shouldn't be the goal, you say, is universal access to the highest end health care. Dr. Gavin, can I ask you to speak a little bit more perhaps about um, what you think of this argument that people want the highest level of health care and they really don't want the run-of-the-mill Medicare or Medicaid level health care? Um, yes, that um, I, I agreed with some um, uh, points that Dr. John made in his article, but I did not agree with that concluding argument. Um, I think the goal should be getting the highest quality of care to everyone. Uh, is it ever going to be possible to have a complete equality of care access? Of course not, but that should be the goal, and that should be our aim. 
Um, and, you know, Medicare is, in fact, um, I wouldn't say Medicare is necessarily a second-tier system. Uh, it, you know, all the major academic medical centers accept Medicare, not necessarily Medicaid, but they accept Medicare. So I think Medicare for all, which is how a single-payer system is sometimes um, uh, framed, is not a bad model. Um, again, all the, you know, by and large, providers accept Medicare, the big academic medical centers take Medicare, the big cancer centers take Medicare, MD Anderson takes Medicare, and so on and so forth. Um, and so um, I think we can afford to have the highest quality of medical care for all. I mean, one day if someone discovers a treatment that requires, you know, sending people off into space, then you need to talk about, you know, is that really something feasible on a society-wide level? But in terms of what treatments are available now, I think we can make the best um, of, of modern medical care available to everyone uh, in terms of the modern medical, medical care that actually um, is, is effective. Um, and so I don't really see a contradiction here, or nor do I see an implausible um, outcome or, or, or plan. Dr. Joe, did you want to respond? Oh, yes. Uh, firstly, I, I wanted to go back to something that Dr. Gaffney said earlier on, which I fully agree with, which is that the American people are not ideological. Actually, he's absolutely right. The American people are not ideological. The American academics are extremely ideological. So the problem with the healthcare debate are not the citizens of the United States, but those in the Ivory Tower, people like myself, I must admit, as well. Now, with regards to the last uh, point uh, that I made about the you know, uh, universal access to basic healthcare and universal protection from bankruptcy, I think, I think um, the problem with the way healthcare is, is that healthcare is not a one-size-fits-all. Now, I, I know... Now, I, mean, I, I live very close to West Philadelphia, and I know the people there that you know, they often drop me off to the airport. So I know the, um, the Bangladeshi, Pakistani, Afghan community there, and they're not interested in screening mammograms. They're not interested in screening colonoscopy. That's not the way they live their lives. They have, that's a very fatalistic culture. They want to be fixed if they have a heart attack. They don't want to be bankrupt if they have a heart attack. If they have a broken bone, they don't want to be bankrupt for that broken bone. But, you know, they'd rather have money in their pockets so that they could go to Pakistan every year and, you know, have money so that they can get gifts for their relatives. And this idea that healthcare is some sort of monolith, we should stop looking at it from a very Anglo-centric perspective. What we, what myself, I live in a gated community and I wear a Fitbit and, you know, there's little chicken littles in my community. What's good for me is not good for Abdul, for instance, the Afghan cab driver. And we have to appreciate that. And it's, it's this heterogeneity in preferences that's really in opposition to this uniformity that we, you know, we seek to impose upon them. And therefore, the costs that we bear, we put onto them. And I think that's, that's, uh, that's uh, regressive taxation. The idea that we, that healthcare is one size fits all is fundamentally wrong. It goes wrong against every human precept. That's not to say that if you have a heart attack, you suddenly start having preferences. Every argument has an exception. So there are some situations when healthcare is uniform and some situations when it's not. And I think we need to identify those where it is and those where it's not and not bankrupt somebody if they have a ruptured spleen. But on the other hand, not push them to be screened by PET scan for dementia. Can I respond to that directly real, real quick? Um, and I like that we've taken a philosophical direction here because it, it adds an interesting twist to, to the usual uh, <laughs> discussion of, of cost-sharing and moral hazard. Um, so uh, I agree that health care is not one-size-fits-all. 
Healthcare is unique to the individual. We all have unique wishes. We all have unique wants. We all have unique medical problems. Um, we all, um, you know, would want different things at the end of life. We all have different thoughts about, you know, various reproductive healthcare issues and so on and so on and so on and so forth. Um, so healthcare is unique. But health coverage should be universal, and I think differentiating between those two things is fundamentally important. Yes, we all have our own wishes, and maybe someone who has different life experiences is going to seek out different care than someone who has another set of life experiences. But coverage should be universal. Everything should be the full spectrum of comprehensive care. Say, oh, well, should be that covered I, mean, I think that's a job. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he might say, well, that's sort of uh, a regressive tax on people who don't use that much health care. Um, and that is only true if the healthcare system is being funded in a regressive manner. If we fund the healthcare system through a progressive taxation, then people pay in what they can afford to pay in on the basis of their income, and then they use the healthcare services um, that they need on the basis of their um, of their needs and of their uh, wishes. And so that's how we fund many things in society. I mean, I may not like to go to the park uh, because I'm, you know, lazy and I don't go and I don't like to run and or I'm just too busy, which is often the case, one of the some combination. Um, but I still pay uh, into public taxes in order to maintain uh, parks. Um, and so I, that's how I would envision this. Yes, healthcare is individual health coverage should be universal and the way we square the circle here to make sure there's not a regressive aspect is through funding the system through progressive taxation and I think if you did that then each people each individual uh, would basically pay in on the basis of their needs and means and they would um, get health care on the basis of their needs well here I thought we could solve uh, the health care uh, issues in a half an hour, but I'm afraid this the conversation's left me slightly pessimistic as to that possibility uh, i I'm actually out of questions. Do you both have any final comments you'd like to share i mean i don't uh, i mean I agree with perhaps eighty three percent of what Dr. Gaffney says and disagree with seventeen percent perhaps seventeen percent becomes more important because of the disagreement, but I do think you need to have this type of discussion particularly the conflicts that we have between coverage and choice. Because when you don't have this type of discussion, it just keeps boiling in. So, you know, people will have to understand what the trade-offs are when you apply a coverage that covers, you know, medical services that somebody might not ever use um, and what the consequences of that are. Or for that matter, if you don't do that, what are the problems is trying to exclude them from those coverages? So we need to have this type of discussion more and more. And I think... The, the post-Trump era uh, has been vilified uh, to some extent, perhaps um, deservedly, but this really seems to be the time Americans can um, introspect to a greatest extent to what they really want from the healthcare and what they're willing to give up. Um, and I would just, for my closing statement, uh, I would agree that these sort of discussions are, are fundamentally important. Um, but I would just ask that we have more of an open mind about the realm of political possibility. I think this is a time of great flux politically. I think that if you read the headlines now, there is a emerging um, consensus, I think, among the population and I hope among the policy community as well, that moving towards um, a single-payer system um, is not only the best way forward, but, 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 but very feasible. And I think once we accept the premise that it's possible, um, it, will, it, it can become more of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, but obviously, none of us can read the tea leaves, and um, uh, what happens next is um, my guess as well as anybody else's.
Well, I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Gaffney and Dr. Zhao for joining us today. You, know, you can read the debate online, and as ever, we'd be delighted to know what you think. So send us a rapid response. We republish the best as formal letters to the editor. If you enjoyed this, then like it and share it. And you can listen to other debates in our archive on SoundCloud or by subscribing on iTunes. Thanks for listening.